This is Jimmy Popular. I'm a DJ every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. on WPRK 91.5 FM in beautiful Winter Park, Florida. In between playing the very best new wave music of all time, I tell stories about life in the big 80s. I'm collecting all those stories together in this podcast, starting with the mostly true but partially made up and definitely embellished story of Nate Flagler. Nate was the homecoming king at Redlands High School in Pennsylvania. He dreamed of someday being a Hollywood publicist. Telling this story is going to take a while, so I've broken it into small chunks, like a Kit Kat bar. Now's a good time to mention that the story contains some adult situations from an adolescent viewpoint. It doesn't have any swear words in it at all, which is remarkable actually, but it does have some pretty frank moments. I came here in a time machine that you invented, and I need your help to get back to the year 1989. Chapter 6, The Mad Lib Plot. Monday, January 1st, 1990. New Year's Day was long and pointless. No school and no Susan and no mail. I wasn't used to living my life without plenty of all three. Physically, my world consisted of the Hotel Ardennes and the surrounding woods, the little town at the bottom of the hill, occasional trips to Red Church, and Sundays and Wednesdays at the New Jerusalem Baptist Church. But I had another world, a theoretical world that existed in thick, secret scrapbooks. In these scrapbooks, I pieced together something I didn't see as my future, but as an alternative present. A world filled with travel brochures of California and London and New York City. A world filled with movie star friends and open mouth kisses and classic cars. In my other world, my flat Appalachian accent was replaced by tones of Dan Rather, each syllable perfect and important and broadcast ready. My mud brown hair was streaked blonde by the Baja sun, and I stayed in a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel or at the Garden of Allah, and I wrote fascinating letters to my socialite sister in her palatial suburban home. In these scrapbooks were pictures of beautiful Latinas emerging from swimming pools and exotic seaside resorts and apartment guides for San Fernando Valley and applications for Azusa Pacific University or Pepperdine or UCLA. In these scrapbooks, which I kept carefully concealed behind the complete collection of blue bound Hardy Boys books, I created collages of glamorous nightclubs, which I would fill with celebrities clipped from TV Guide, always adding a clipped photo of myself mingling among them. Again, it wasn't that I wanted to be that someday. I lived it right then, sitting there in the window of my parents' home, 17 years old, a rusted-out postal wagon barreling down the road at me. I was living that Hollywood life, only I had never set foot outside Pennsylvania. My real world was a small one, and without Susan's friendship, it was going to be a lonely one as well. Two of my siblings were close to my own age, and we got along okay for the most part. But they didn't seem to have visions that took them beyond the boundaries of Redlands Township, and they certainly didn't understand the things that I cared about the most. Even my cousin Jeremy hadn't really gotten me the way that Susan had. I was pretty depressed about the whole thing, and I guess my family was getting worried about it because Ma sent Belinda up to my room that afternoon with chocolate cake. Ma says I'm supposed to try and find out what's wrong with you without actually letting you know that I'm collecting information for our parents, Belinda explained sitting on the edge of my narrow bed and crushing a carefully clipped photo of Bruce Willis, which I was planning to add to my latest scrapbook collage. And so I'm here with subtlety and chocolate cake. I'll take the cake, I allowed, not looking up for my homework. But you can fold your subtlety into five corners and place it deep inside yourself, because I'm not talking. Belinda was not an easy person, by the way. Her battles with our parents often bewildered the boys in the family. We would listen through our paper-thin walls as Dad would sternly lecture and Ma would heartbreakingly plead and Belinda would alternately debate and demand and sob. I was never really sure what most of the arguments were about. Cigarettes and boys and curfews, maybe. I never seemed to get in any trouble, and Tommy was more likely to silently walk out the front door to go fishing than to argue with the array of parental figures in our house. And our older brothers had been mostly stoic and quiet like our father. 
By contrast, Belinda was loud and emotional and quick. Tonight, she looked over my shoulder and said, Oh, wow, I remember doing that assignment. Miss Jones is a grizzly bear. I dropped my pen and turned to face her. She's okay once you learn your way around her, although lately I can't seem to keep off her bad side. Well, her famous plot assignment is easy anyway, Belinda said dismissively. Yeah, right. Everybody else turned in before Christmas and moved on. She handed mine back to me with a note that said, You have no idea what a plot is. Find one by January. I gestured helplessly toward my notebook. I'm the editor of the school newspaper. I write all the time, and I apparently don't know what a plot is. My sister took my notebook and surveyed my attempts at writing a plot outline for the short story. Her brow furrowed, and she glanced up at me. You make simple things too complicated, Nate. Then she took the pen I had discarded and began crossing things out. Look, if you can't state the plot in one sentence, then you're not there yet. Think of the plot as a story, just very short, like a to-do list. Figure out what the main character wants to accomplish overall. Figure out what stands in his way. Write it down, and that's it. That's your plot. What if he wants a whole bunch of things? Then figure out what those things have in common and sum it all up in one sentence. Someone who reads TV Guide as if it was a lost gospel should be a whiz at this. She snatched an issue of the magazine that I'd been chopping up for a collage, and she flipped to a random page. Listen. The battle of the sexes heats up when Charles swears off women after a fight with Gwendolyn, only to discover that Lila has invited all of her giggling girlfriends over for an overnight party. That's a plot. That's just a stupid sitcom, I complained. A stupid sitcom with a clear, simple plot. Plus, you get Scott Bayo in the bargain. So cute. And if that's not good enough, how about this? A police chief, a scientist, and a grizzled sailor set out to kill a shark that is menacing the seaside community of Amity Island. Oh wow, when is that going to be on, I asked, forgetting that the TV guide was about five years old. She smacked me in the forehead with the magazine. So pretend your short story is going to be on TV tonight, and write one sentence that will make someone want to watch it, as opposed to a rerun of Charles in Charge. I don't know if I'm that good, I said sarcastically, but I was relieved for her help. I quickly wrote... A cowboy, a varsity swimmer, and a turtle enthusiast vie for the attention of an evil temptress who is menacing the community of Red Church. Homework complete. Hey, Belinda, I said then. Do you know if Tommy has any tattoos? She shrugged. I doubt it. He's not a very secretive person, and honestly, since he knows how much it would irritate Aunt Swell if he got one, I doubt he could resist showing one off if he had one to show. Just to rub her face in it. I do not think he would rub her face in this one, I said. Does he like turtles? He likes all animals. He's a vegetarian or whatever. He was a vegan, to be exact. I decided to let it go. I couldn't picture our brother getting a turtle tattooed on his butt anyway, no matter how much beer was involved. Belinda ran her fingers across the completed portion of the scrapbook page I'd been working on earlier. What's this one about? It kind of reminds me of that climber kid's living nativity scene at the church. I turned the entire book around and showed her the half-finished tableau. This is going to be a typical Friday night for me when I'm at UCLA next fall. In the foreground, the Santa Monica Pier. In the background, Mulholland Drive. As you can see, Sybil Shepard and Karen Carpenter are serving trays of grilled cheese sandwiches to my guests, all of whom have one thing in common. If you can tell me what that trait is, I'll reveal my troubles to you. My sister brushed back her long brown hair with one hand and leaned in to examine the page more carefully. After a while, she simply said, Well, the question is moot because Karen Carpenter is dead. That's why it's so ironic that she's serving food at my party, I replied evenly. Then I glued on the extremely offensive dialogue bubble I prepared for Karen, which said, Touch me when we're dancing, and you'll break every bone in my body. Belinda got up and walked to the window. Well, I don't think that quote's very funny. Susan thought it was funny when I told her about it. You've talked to Susan, my sister asked, surprised. We all kind of assumed that she had something to do with you being upset, that you two fought. Let me guess. She tried to talk you out of your fixation on Judy Harder. 
I peeled the rude words off the collage and closed my scrapbook. Judy sucks, I said darkly. I'm hilarious. Well, Belinda said, I think Judy's a little fast for you. Judy's a little fast for NASCAR, I replied. She was unaffected by my bitterness. Anyway, you deserve better. She'll just cheat on you. She's been fooling around with Angela's boyfriend. You know, the rhinestone cowboy? Yeah, I know. Boy, did I know. Belinda shrugged. Well, I'm out of that school. I'm glad I don't have to get caught up in those scandals anymore. I'm done with the Harders and the Bextons of this world. And personally, I think Angela deserves what she gets. Why do you hit Angela? Mind your own business. My advice is talk to Susan as soon as possible. Put all this behind you. And if you can, stop hibernating in your room. We all liked you better when you were diving off the roof in your underwear during snowstorms. Do you ever regret not being a Harder? I mean, like, not being with Jamie Harder? She surveyed my collage again, ignoring my query. Why are there two Olivia Newton-Johns at the party? I sighed heavily and said, It's modern art. You would not understand. My sister left me alone with my cake and my glue. The clock ticked. I glued a few more guests into my theoretical party. I began working on my application essay for Pepperdine University, my seventh favorite fallback choice if for some reason I wasn't accepted to UCLA. Pepperdine was in Malibu. My phenomenal one-fingered typing skills made me look like an idiot savant on the word processor. I listened to some 45s on the record player. The Escape Club, The Suite, Men Without Hats, Terry Jacks. I performed a pretty good lip-sync version of Seasons in the Sun, wondering if the song was right, if the stars we could reach were just starfish on the beach, and then I got out my dry erase board, and I continued working on my checklist of all the guys who I knew were at the New Year's Eve party. I crossed off the people who definitely were not the third man. For instance, I knew it wasn't my second cousin Jeremy because the third man wasn't bow-legged. I assumed it wasn't Jamie Harder for obvious reasons. I was pretty sure Pony Boy would not be caught dead in some girl's bedroom at a party. Everyone else, however, needed to be thoroughly vetted, and Tommy burst into my room without knocking. The heavy wooden door swung open with such force that the doorknob crushed the inner circle of plaster on the wall. That was the kind of entrance he liked to make. Tommy was a vegetarian he-man, like Darth Vegan. Ma asked me to find out what's wrong with you without actually letting on that I'm collecting information for your parents, he said, punctuated by sinking his teeth into a big red apple. I should say this first. My brother Tommy, he wasn't originally my brother. The summer after Aunt Sue Ellen graduated from college, she started working as a secretary for old Judge Bexton, as in Judy and Angela's shared grandfather, the Viking, and the huge portrait in each of their houses. Sometime that summer, Swell's boyfriend was killed in a tragedy that nobody ever talks about, and to make matters worse, by that fall, her dresses weren't fitting right anymore. At first, everybody thought Sue Ellen was putting on a bit of weight because she was sad, but then her sorrows started to look a whole lot like a baby was on the way. She apparently really lost it over her boyfriend dying, but I'll bet it made her feel a little good to know that even though he had died, there was part of him that would live on, like John F. Kennedy Jr. I don't know if she felt that way or not, because when I was told that Tommy was technically my uncle and not my brother, I was, told, I was also told never to talk about it with anybody, especially with Aunt Swell. I guess that would make her self-conscious or something. But Tommy pointed at the board on the easel and said, What's this, your hit list? Why is my name on there? I shrugged. I can't talk about that. It's classified. What the hell goes on up here anyway? Why do you have your own dry erase board? He demanded, glancing around my room at the file cabinets and the carefully organized shelving units. I'm working on my college applications. What could be more wholesome? He snorted, chawing down on more apple as he talked. I bet I know more from working on a real job than you'll ever learn at UCLA. I said, well, if the subject is dyeing fabric various colors, you definitely have me beat, Tom. And if what you want out of life is a factory job four miles from where you were born, I hope you enjoy it. Seriously, that's awesome. I was just being defensive because he judged me for having a dry erase board in my bedroom. Our family is very pro-union. 
So anyway, Tommy was born, and it was decided that Ma and Dad would raise him as their own so that Aunt Sue Ellen could go back to work as a secretary, which would help her have a good foundation when she finally found a new boyfriend and got married. Only, she never did find another boyfriend, even though she was still pretty then. And she never went back to her secretarial job, even though it was a good one. Everybody thought someday Judge Bexton might even become Governor Bexton or Supreme Court Justice Bexton or Soviet Premier Bexton or whatever. But Sue Ellen stayed at home and helped take care of all the babies, of course, following the grand family tradition of avoiding fame and fortune. And, and what is it you want to be, Tommy asked, grinning. A pharmacist? Publicist, I corrected him. Right, a publicist. So you'll dedicate yourself to um, publicizing things. That's handy. I stared up at him, and he stared back with a maddeningly patient expression of his. When's the Super Bowl this year? I asked. January 28th. You know why you know that? I asked. Because the NFL has a team of publicists. And the reason you know what movies are good to see is that a publicist prepares a press kit and sends it to a reviewer who watches the movie and gives it a thumbs up or thumbs down. And Leighton Radcliffe knows what beer to take to the reservoir at night because Anheuser-Busch has a publicist. And you know the number for PETA because they have a publicist. And Ronald Reagan was president because he had a good publicist. He was holding up one of his fingers in front of my face. Do you want to guess which one? Whatever, Tom, I said. Wondering if he had a turtle tattoo on his ass after all. Thanks a bunch for dyeing all that cloth green or blue or whatever it is you do for a living. You rock. The only thing about Tommy that didn't match the rest of the family was his blonde hair. Other than that, he had the same Campbell Soup Kid face as the rest of us. I'll bet Ann Sue Ellen's dead boyfriend looked like a surfer crossed with a professional wrestler, because that's what Tommy resembled. He'd gotten expelled from high school just last winter, and he took a job at the Bexton Knitting Mill, sometimes worked over at Uncle Bobby's fixing cars. He liked to drink beer at the reservoir with his buddies and made a hobby of rescuing injured animals and nursing them back to health. And he liked to get stoned. Like Bob Dylan, I guess, but without the guitar or facial hair. You get frustrated so easily, Tommy said, that whenever I'm feeling low, I can just come over to your room and pull your chain and watch the gears turn and the gaskets blow. He was positively glowing at this point, so pleased to have raised my fury. And you can't even fight a guy like him, because he'll just clobber you with little or no effort and still be smiling when he's done. For all of his bad traits, he genuinely liked me so much that it never seemed to occur to him that he was kind of a jerky brother. Tommy was locally infamous for having started a brush fire near Summerland when he was 13 years old. He and Leighton and Kent were aspiring firefighters at the time, and when they failed to contain one of their practice fires, the twins took off running and Tommy got the sole blame for the destruction of 10 acres of woodland. The only reason he didn't end up in a juvenile detention center was that Angela Bexton's dad owned the land and I guess decided to forgive him. That was nice of him, right? You should be more like me, Tommy was saying. As he dug through one of my bookshelves, he pulled out a Kurt Vonnegut book and then one by Tolkien. This is mine. This is mine. You should be more like how I am. I just suppress my rage and turn into self-righteous anger to be vented on innocent people later in life, Tommy explained. That's what Aunt Sue Ellen tells me anyway. She thinks I'm going to be a career criminal because I never seem to get mad. Although if he keeps stealing my books from my room, there's going to be trouble. I leaned back against my bed, having completed the application of my fifth favorite fallback school, Biola University, also in California. My parents might be more excited about my impending move to the West Coast if I chose a Christian college, so, you know. My printer began to hum, warming up. Is it tough on you having her live in the house with us? I asked. He froze for a second, staring me down. Then he said, after 17 years, it occurs to you now, tonight, that I might feel a little conflicted by having Aunt Sue Ellen being my birth mother? I shrugged. Well, you know, I just never saw a good time to ask about it, so I'm asking now. I don't worry about it too much, Tommy said. I'm sure it's really awkward for her more than it is for me, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, neither she. Let's talk about something else. You have any tattoos, I murmured, but he didn't hear what I said. How do you decide you want to become a publicist? I shrugged fanning myself with Biola envelope. Well, 
Remember when I got to interview River Phoenix over the phone for the school newspaper? Tommy nodded dutifully. I had a limited number of personal anecdotes to share, and my family had been subjected to all of them multiple times. To be honest, I only talked with River for about five or ten minutes, but I talked to his publicist twice for half an hour each time, and I really got excited about the idea of organizing someone else's public image like that, being responsible for shaping the way the world sees someone. I'd written a research paper on the topic last month, so I was kind of filled with well-developed phrases like that. Wouldn't you rather be River Phoenix? I'd rather be Christian Slater, I admitted. But since I'm not, I think I could use my creativity to help someone else with their career. I write amazing press releases. So you're really going to go to Los Angeles to do it, he wanted to know? I hope so. Tommy got up. I'll tell Ma you're just fine. I don't know what she and Belinda are talking about. And with that, he turned to leave. Hey, Tom, I said, and he stopped to listen. You should think about what makes you happy. No matter what it is, find a job where you can do it. I mean, unless you really get a rise out of textile dye. He looked at me stonily. What if nothing really makes me happy? What if Sue Allen's right and all I am is a ball of pent-up rage? Then figure out what makes you so mad and make a career of fixing it. Speaking of which, did you make up with Rhonda yet? He grunted. No, I got somebody new. She's older. Sophisticated. Oh, Henry, I replied, which was our family's stock response when we attempted to take the Lord's name in vain. He took this good-naturedly. She thinks my job at the mill is sexy. She wants me to sneak her in there one night and do the whole flash dance thing. What a feeling. Oh, one more thing I said. Was Danny Weller at the Harder's party last night? Yeah, I think so. I added Danny to my list. What is that for? Was Ray Brower there? No. What are you doing? I added the name to my board anyway and said, research. You are whack, he told me. Then he took the marker from me and crossed his name out on the list. Whatever that's for, it wasn't me. Tommy left the room just as abruptly as he had arrived, and anyway, he was probably right. Only a few moments went by before I felt a shadow fall across my desk again. Nathan, Aunt Suellen said, standing in the door of my room like an old-fashioned house mother in a cutting-edge fraternity. I looked up at her respectfully, but her eyes were all over the room, the shelves loaded with books, records, cassette tapes, the obsessively labeled drawers, the stacks of notebooks and file folders, the wall-to-wall savage furniture— posters on the ceiling, the clippings scattered on the floor at my feet. She said nothing, just gazed around the room with a sort of constipated expression on her face. I thought I'd help her out by saying, Ma says I'm supposed to try to find out what's wrong with you without actually letting you know that I'm collecting information for your parents, Aunt Swell. This used to be my bedroom, she told me quietly, as she crossed to the window and looked out onto the lawn. Of all the rooms in this house that has the best view of the road, she stared out at the road, her hands gripping the windowsill. She was losing weight, I noticed then. Weight she couldn't really afford to lose. Anyway, of course I'd always known this room had once been Sue Ellen's. After I was born, she moved into the only bedroom downstairs to be close to the kitchen, and her old room became my nursery. My older brothers called her the burglar alarm because she always reported them to our parents when they came in after curfew, no matter how quietly they tried to navigate the living room. By the time I had set the scrapbook aside and was working on the application packet for UCLA, Anne Swell walked to my dot matrix printer and she grabbed the fan-folded essay as it jerked its way out over the side of the desk. Do you really want to go to school in California, she demanded. I stared at my aunt for a moment and I nodded. Yeah, I do. I think I belong there. I sure wasn't fitting in that great in Pennsylvania. You've never even been there. You've never been anywhere near there, she reminded me. How can you belong somewhere you've never been? I stretched out across my bed and stared up at the ceiling. By that logic, nobody would ever leave Redlands. Have you been to the cemetery lately, she said. This is where our family is from, where we live, and where we die, for the past 250 years anyway. Well, something made our ancestors leave Germany, I argued. Aunt Suellen scanned my essay for errors and said, yes, extreme poverty, overcrowding, 
bad government, and they came over as indentured servants and struggled for years. If you go to a college in California, your life here is pretty much over. I mean, you can't expect your parents to fly you home every weekend. You'll be there with nobody. Susan's going with me. Plus, I'll meet new people. Drug addicts and prostitutes. Maybe a drag queen or a crazy foreigner thrown in. And they won't love you, she told me, discarding my essay and crossing her arms. You should stay where people love you. Bloom where you're planted. I frowned at her. So would you say that you're blooming? Is that how you describe your life? I promise I didn't mean for it to sound rude, but she started it. She was a tough old girl, though. Her lower lip protruded a bit, but she maintained an even tone of voice. You may think that all I am is a housewife, one without a husband, without a house to call her own, but I've earned my keep in this family, in this household. When you had a virus as a baby and your poor mother thought, oh, here we go, every time I stepped on Aunt Sue Ellen's toes, I had to be reminded that when I was three years old, I had a fever of 105, and she stayed up all night putting ice on my chest and saved my life, which I appreciate, but come on. You never wanted to move away from here, I interrupted her sharply, and she sputtered to a stop. I pressed on. Come on, Aunt Swell. You never want to go somewhere big and important where things happen, where you can take a subway or a freeway or a back stairway, go to a party and meet sexy strangers just once? She became flustered and turned away, but she swung back at me and said quickly, in a tone I'd never heard her from her before, from one that she might have used when she was still young and beautiful but dark and secretive, I did go away once, for your information, she said, and something sparked behind her deep blue eyes. I went to California, in fact, and I went to a party with strangers, so when I tell you to just stay home and bloom where you're planted, I'm talking as someone who knows. She blinked twice, kind of hard probably realizing for the first time in her lives that she'd let me see over the wall she'd built around herself. For one moment, she had been something to me other than a bossy aunt, other than a burglar alarm, and I think she resented me for it now that it was over. She reached for my UCLA application and shoved it into my hands. You spelled publicist wrong in your essay, Nathan, and then she was gone. Alone in my room, in her old room, I scanned the essay and saw my mistake. Maybe I want to be a pubicist, I growled. I discarded the tacky plot I'd written for Miss Jones. On a fresh sheet of paper, I wrote, The unlikely high school homecoming king of a rural wasteland learns to let go of all the things and people holding him back from the promise of a glorious new life in California. And that would be the plot. Thanks so much for listening. The Jimmy Popular Show is written by James Brenlinger and produced by Joshua Dobbs. You can learn more about the podcast, the radio show, or my surprisingly large collection of costumes by liking my Facebook page at Jimmy Popular. See you real soon.